0: that I'm not rushing through it, through it. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit literally embrace us with this. that which is alive in us, come alive in it. So as we come to the study uh, tonight, we will be looking specifically at the Pharisee, the coming. And I, I do believe that Jesus Christ is... Personally, return it. And I look forward to that day. But I also believe that our understanding of end times gives us an understanding of the entire Bible because that's where we're headed for. Amen? Therefore, where we're headed, everything along the way fits in with that. That's the idea. So let's go ahead and get started in the scripture. We're in chapter 4 beginning with verse 13. Now, keep that hand because we'll be referring back to some of those verses throughout tonight. But, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not breathe as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of, an arch, of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so, shall always, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen? On the Thessalonians, Paul makes reference to the Pharisee, the coming, the, the, the standing in the presence of life, which is what Pharisee means. Let me show you quickly a couple of verses that he refers to in First Thessalonians there in chapter one and, and, and verse, verse yeah, verse ten. He says that to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of the coming. And then we have in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse nineteen, For who is our hope or joy or pride and exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And in chapter three, verse thirteen, so that you may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. And then these verses that we just read in chapter four, many more in, in chapter five, speak about the children of the day and the children of the night and the children of darkness and the children of light at the day of the Lord coming and and, and, and that it won't take us out way because we live in the light. And then, of course, when you get into chapters 1 and 2 of 2nd Thessalonians, he really gets into it even more. And these two little books are jammed with references to Parousia of the Lord Jesus. This one that we are now considering, I would place really at the heart he really explains it to us here. And he takes us back to what he talked about when he went to Thessalonica. Do you remember, again, I just want to pull back on the history we've been sitting the base all along here. Do you remember the accusation against him by the authorities. said he's speaking of another king, you know, even Jesus says. So obviously there is reference there to the returning of the Lord. Now, you cannot speak to the reign of Christ unless you see its consummation in the parousia and the new heaven and the new earth that lies behind it. Now, remember, remember, the kingdom of God is dead. Not sometime in the future. It's not something that's not. It's not. I, I, I'm going to say it to you as plain as I can. I do not believe in the coming king concept. Jesus is not the coming king. He's the king who is coming. Hello? There's a big difference in that. And and the kingdom of God is here. God is now. Also, it exists now where? In the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But when the prayer takes place, and, and, and we are ushered into that new universe, and we find the consummation of that kingdom and the grand finale of what it's all about. So obviously, he's spoken about it in Thessalonica to begin with. And it will be a basis of the riots, it will be a basis of the persecutions. Now he's writing back and, and sorting out a few points, as well as referring them to the events. The early church, they, they speak so enthusiastically concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. And i should say far more enthusiastically than we do today. I mean, in fact, I hardly, I'm going to get for this, but I'm going say it. Because I hardly ever hear or have heard a sermon on the coming of the Lord Jesus. I have heard sermons that have Said that they were going to do that, but they didn't do it, they started talking about politics in the middle of it. That's not the coming of the Lord. Well, we very rarely get down to what the early church was enthusiastic about. They were enthused specifically with the fact that Jesus the Lord, the King, was returning. But they believed that it would happen, in their own lifetime, right? And I see no reason why they shouldn't have believed anything else. I mean, you remember the disciples hanging around when Jesus ascended? And the angel saying he's gone, and you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing as you have seen him go? Go and preach the gospel. And, and they went and they did it, waiting all the time. He's coming, he's coming. I find no problem with that. I find that each age believes that their age is the last one. In A.D. 400 and, and 500, when Rome was collapsing, I mean, even Augustine said, this, "This is it, boys. This." I mean, can you imagine a world without Rome? They never thought that tourists would come and visit those worlds. But uh, you, you know, if Rome is collapsing, then Jesus was coming. That was the idea. And all through the ages, there have been those who have said, this is it. We'll go back in in our recent back to World War II, World War I, all these things. But that's healthy. I'll just tell you right now, in my book, it's healthy because it means that every generation has lived on the tiptoes of expectancy that he is coming. And he said, when he does come, they'll take you by surprise. So no one generation will be able to say, I know the day, I know the week that is is coming. We don't. We we don't. We all live on the tiptoe of expectancy. So they have this enthusiasm, and Paul expresses that enthusiasm in this chapter more than for us. But, But let me say this. There are three words in the New Testament. Let's speak of coming. The word parousia. I explained this again in my previous situation, this situation, sessions, I'm watching Vince back in the inspector move on. The box, so that I don't, my life doesn't be exactly that. You know, it, it's the being ushered into the present self. Parousia. Into the present self. You, you, you have come to this this teaching and session tonight. So we are all in the presence here. But along with that word, sometimes there's another word that's used within the Greek is epiphenia. Epiphenia. Okay, basically means, it means the strength. It means the brilliance, the magnificent, the majesty, the awesomeness, the overwhelmingness. It means appearance. And then there's another word that's used, and that word is apocalypse, which we translate, actually, the last book of the Bible, the apocalypse or the revelation. That means the dawning of. Revelation means the dawning of, say, the blinds, and you pull them back, and it's the letting the light come in. You see things as they really are. So... The parousia will be the epithenia of his shining Gloria, and then the whole world will see what truth really is. So in this chapter right here, we are dealing specifically with the parousia, which will have undertones or overtones of the epithenia. Uh, The shining glory, uh, this would be the apocalypse, the the unveiling, the revelation of the way things are. And he speaks all of this to the mood of the people in Thessalonians. And, And I find it very interesting, and I say that because this expresses Paul's mood about the Pharisee, and it also expresses what he told them and what they were now believing the mood, notice, not what relates to the politics of the day. You can go through every verse that speaks of the second coming of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, and you will never find any reference to politics. That's why, and I'm just being, you know, kind of a right here. Uh, I was flipping through uh, some documentaries on Netflix and. They have the four-part series on, on the coming of Jesus and all these things that are happening in the world and all this politics. And I, I get kind of irritated when I continue to hear people who speak of the Pharisee and they so often speak of either politics or Arabs or Israel, Israel Israelis, and, and all the rest of it that they put there. I don't find that in the New Testament. Paul had absolutely no interest in the politics of his day and or any future day as far as that goes. No interest in any up of, of world events at any time. To him, everything, everything zeroed in on the one person who was returning, whose presence they would stand in. Secondly, there was no morbid idle curiosity there there's plain statements of facts, that been, and that's it, immediately seeing then how that relates to my life in the here and in the now. I find it a lot that is said these days, said about these days, about the coming is nothing more than some kind of Judeo-Christian theology. You pick up, even you know, pick. You know, how you go to the store shelf, oh, checkout counter. You see all those magazines hanging around. They got that one you know called the Natural Enquirer, and you can find out. You can find out all the predictions of the future. And you even go to the bookstore and pick up a book from some astrologer about the future. And right next to it in that section, you get you you, you, can, you, you got this today Christian book that tell you what the future is going to be like. So all to say. That's all. Enough to say there is a morbid curiosity. Sorcery and witchcraft do not begin with the devil. You hear that? You know that. As soon as the person says, oh, it's always into witchcraft. Oh, that's the demons. The Bible doesn't say that. It says witchcraft is a work of the flesh. Take a look at Galatians 5 sometime. I won't get into that right now. I say that because you can be sure that the devil comes in very quickly. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But to begin with, the root of astrology and witchcraft is the work of the flesh. What work are, I mean, what work of the flesh are you referring to? It's the curiosity that wants to know what is none of my business. And when I find that kind of morbid curiosity to know the future for the sake of the, of knowing the future, that is bordering on witchcraft and astrology. Mm-hmm. At paper, find my astrology you know, I feel bad for those people who were born under the bull. It's a large place to be born, you know what I mean. But you don't find that here. There's a French breeze that's flowing here. It's, it's simple facts that point me to the brightness of the glory of its kind. But it is the grand finale of our redemption that ushers in a whole new universe. At least I typed that on your notes. It is the grand finale of our redemption that ushers in a Whole new universe. So it begins with a problem that the Thessalonica people had, and we explain that early on in, 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 in at the beginning. <laughs> people had died since Paul left, and they had, and the Thessalonicans are distraught to think that in dying, their loved ones had now missed the Persecuted. They're in such despair. And Paul writes this letter, almost like a smack on the hand kind of thing, to say, absolutely not. Quite the reverse. There is no despair when we talk about the death of believers. Then he gives us this tremendous passage. See, the pagan world in the days of Paul had no hope whatsoever pagan world of today has little no hope concerning what lies in the future as far as death goes. No hope. So the best that they could do was approach death with this grim resignation and, and hiding hope and the hopelessness as best they could in front of them. That was the word of the Roman Greek philosophers. It was grim resignation. It was stoic. It was walking out into death. And it's hopeless. It is the hope. Some philosophers wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. That is hopelessness. But that was the statement of the philosophers of that day. Another one wrote, those who have died without hope. Remember I told you earlier that Thessalonica, it, it was the meeting place of all the minds, the philosophers, the cults, they all met there at Thessalonica. This is what they believe. This is No hope. No resurrection. It's curtains. It's over. Someone wrote on their grave the epithet. This is how they read it. I was not, I became. I am not, and I, don't, I killed him. That's his empathy path. Paul is giving us absolute, solid foundation for comforting one another. The world the word gives us empty, empty words. It, it's no wonder that the pagans of the day became Christians when they saw how Christians died. It wasn't the miracles that convinced the Roman world. The miracles had their place. Get me wrong. But what actually think the Greek Roman world in the days of Paul was how these Christians approached death. If a pagan did see something, hope of some kind of life after death, there was never any hope for their body. Did you hear when that? Death, when death came, they said goodbye to their body. To them, any hope after life, after death, was dismissive. You're talking about a disembodied region. It's often called, you look in, in the ancient books, the shades. The shades. No hope. No, no hope whatsoever. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it divides the whole human race into two. T- take a look at it. I'm going to start. Way in verse fourteen says that might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release, well, read this, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, you have to give something really to these pagans. They, they did think about it for Pete's sake. They, they thought about it. And they said there's no hope. They, they thought about it and said there's no resurrection. The trouble in our country today is we won't even think about it. we to suppressed it. Everybody thinks that they're immortal kind of thing. Coming out of that pagan world, and, and of course the Jews honestly weren't too much better off than that, they had no grand hope for what lay behind it. They, 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 they weren't sure It says in Timothy that, that Jesus brought immortality to life. Immortality was always there, but nobody knew much about it. Jesus brought it to life. So Jew and Gentile, when it came to this, they came out of that world into a new world where Paul spoke of a kingdom, a coming, a life, a new universe. And now our loved ones have died, and they missed it. You get the picture of of all the things. I mean, miss a train, maybe miss a boat, but don't miss the parachutist. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. What should we do? And, and it brought despair. To their funerals. Have you ever been to a funeral that's disturbing? Have, have you ever been to a Jehovah Witness funeral? No. I have. And it's like, oh, again. Getting back to this weekend, I didn't can, want to study. It brought this day. They missed the Parisian, and how can I enjoy it if they're not here? They'll miss their bodies. They'll miss the resurrection. They'll be floating around, you know, disembodied. They're going to be naked spirits. So Paul writes this passage, which is the foundation of hope. It shows us the absolute difference between a believer and a non-believer in terms of hope. It is because of what we understand. It's because of what we rest in in the finished work that we now have hope when it comes to facing death. Listen to me, beginning. Jesus died not only to deal with sin, but also to return men and the planet to normal perfection. Look at your neighbor and tell them, we are not normal. Now, don't look at me and say, I said each other, okay. Let me say this. Man was, and you've heard me say it often, man was not created to die. He was created with a body that was capable of death. Yes, but not to die. It was a body that could, as Adam did, take death to it, as Jesus' body would never die until he accepted death. That is why the human race kind of backs off of death. Because Italy, we, we know that we're not supposed to die. Even a Christian would back off from death for all his hope because he knows better than anybody that man was not created to die. We're in a rocky world. Would you say amen to that? The, the whole universe is distorted. It's, it's, it's out of joy. And when it comes to death, death is unnatural to him, and it always will be. Jesus takes our bodies to himself. Listen, when Jesus goes to the cross, he not only goes there as you, as you in terms of sin, bearing your sin, he also goes there bearing you, which is in Including your body. I have never thought very much of where your body stands in what Jesus did. He dealt with our bodies as well as our spirits when he died on the cross. When he rose again from the dead, every one of us believers were in him. He rose declaring you justified, he rose declaring a body that could not die has now been purchased for you. I hope you see the difference. Adam had a body that was not made to die, but capable of. You will be given, based upon what Jesus did, a body that cannot die. Because it has already passed through death. In death, And the death of Jesus, it passed through death and came out the other side. So it can't die. Now, of course, now I have the concept of divine healing. People say it is divine healing in the atonement. And my response is, you're thinking small. A body that cannot die. Is in the atonement. Jesus didn't die just to take away your aches and pains. He didn't die just to take away a passing sickness. He died to give you a body that couldn't be sick and couldn't die. Then, what was the idea? The ah, question, you ask. Divine healing is the Holy Spirit taking a little bit of that body that you have coming to you and giving a little bit of it to you now. you see that? It's taking a little bit of that body that you have coming to you and giving a little bit to you now. As if he's saying, "Here, here, this. <laughs> and here's what it's going to be like, right later. So in that sense, the gift of healing, I call it the earnest that The pledge payment of a body that is yet to come. So in that understanding, divine healing is always in the atonement. But, and, and, and I say that, understand the big picture, And that we are only getting a little bit of what really is in the atonement. Christian looks forward to a body given to him in the resurrection that cannot die. And of course, if that is the case, if my body has already been through death in Jesus and has risen again from the dead, then remember what Jesus said? He said this to Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. I, I think you remember. He said, whoever believes in me shall I Never die. He says afterwards, do you believe that? That's a huge statement. If you believe upon him, you shall never die. What did he mean? Have you noticed throughout the scripture, especially here, that no believer is ever said to die? It says they fell on sleep. Now notice the words Verse 14. It says, "For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus." You would have thought okay. those, however, when we look at them, He says, "The dead in Christ." So when we look at them, we see the absence of physical life, and we say they're dead. But we say they're dead in Christ. Their experience of what we call dead in Christ is falling asleep. It's an incredible comfort. The suffering, the true suffering of death of a loved one is, is, is not in that person that you see. Quote, dying. What they are experiencing in that moment is like falling asleep. The suffering it is 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 well, actually, is of the person who's calling the beholder, the person who's dead, But they are going to experience like falling asleep. So we say, uh, looking at them, they're dead. They're saying, but they're saying. Uh, fell asleep. Death has in it the tear cut by the pain. The fall. The falling asleep is beautiful. I have been around death more than 99.5% of death people. I've watched over and over and over again The reality of a believer falling asleep is that they are in the arms of Jesus. You can put it like this, okay? Jesus died, so we would fall asleep. Jesus died, so we would fall asleep. That is because it says of Jesus that he died. It doesn't say that Jesus fell asleep. It says he tasted death for every man, but for those who believe upon Him, they fall asleep. The foundation of the Christian hope, when it comes to this, is that Jesus died and rose again. Once I know that, once I understand what happened there, I look at death in an entirely different way. One of the greatest scriptures, I think. Is in the stoning of Stephen. The stones are battering him, and every man looked like he's suffering, and, and he kneels there praying for his persecutors, as these huge rocks are smashing his body to pieces, and the Bible says what he fell on sleep. I mean, come, what a time to go to You would think that we would. Get an explanation of, of, of the suffering and the torture that he's going through. The Bible says the only way I can describe what happened to him is that he fell asleep. If you were standing there watching him, you would go away to relate the, the, the pain, the, the, the torture. The Holy Spirit says, not no, no, don't think like that. You know what really happened. Because things are not what they seem to be. He fell asleep. That's how Christians died. He died that we might sleep. Let me remind you that whoever believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ never dies. Do you believe that? That's why when we come together afterwards, after somebody is falling asleep, we celebrate life. Their bodies fell asleep, but they got up out of their bodies and walked into the presence of Jesus. As Paul says, to be with Christ, which is, by the way, far better. Or, 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 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, yeah, so so where your believing loved ones are right now is in the immediate presence of, of Jesus Christ. Now the only problem is, they don't have a body. Have you ever really thought much about it? Bodies do happen to come with a package, you know. I'm just say, and we tend to take it for granted. But in Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul speaks, saying that he doesn't want to be naked. He said he'd rather wait for the Paraclete instead of having to lose his body. Because this one can be transformed without taking it off. They are in the presence of Christ, but without a body. Now this points up the uniqueness in my book of the union, our relationship to God through Christ. Because you and I, believers, have a union with Christ that death not touch. In fact, let me, let me just put it to you this way: When you came to Christ, you died, and the Bible speaks of you being buried. And and the way I understand that is expe- expressed perfectly in baptism. Remember, baptism is an expression, it's a statement, an affirmation of my faith—the faith that says. I deserve to die, and in Christ, i die. Would you please bury me? That is why I like to then take that person and bury them under water. And then I bring them out of the water after about 30 seconds. Then I bring them out of the water because they died with Christ, and they were buried with Christ, and now they walk in the newness of life. You are in the world, but you are not of it because you died by faith in Christ and baptism saved. Now you come back. And that man never dies. He is one, one with himself. It is a union that cannot be saved. Remember, the pagan looks into the grave with despair. The Christian looks into the grave and he weeps. And he says, there is others who have that faith. He is triumphant. He is feared. We have a solid foundation upon which we live. And of course the, the pagan has nothing despair, but the Christian has everything, the, the, the triumph at the graveside. It means a rejoice. It a giving thanks to God. How often have I said that I would rather do a funeral any day than a wedding? There is no more greater moment Michael, of triumph than when a Christian stands by a graveside and and you have come to the end, and it's over. To the Christian, that's not despair. They've just begun. This is a moment of triumph. We sorrow not as others. We look forward to the parousia. So, so, what is going to happen at the parousia that causes us not to sorrow as others? First of all, it says in verse sixteen of chapter four in First Thessalonians. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now that reminds me of Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Again, why do you stand gazing up the heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The Lord himself. There's not going to be any angel sent on his behalf. No representative. is going to be the Lord himself. He who is now with us and in us by the Holy Spirit will be made manifest. The epithemia the glory that we speak of, will be seen. It will be the apocalypsis Pulling the side of the curtain over, and he that we know shall be seen. It will happen in our history. This is not some space-sided up front. This is in our history. He who died in our history, rose in our history, ascended in history, shall return in history. It will not be something that you just feel all to yourself. It will be just people, (laughs) it's a theory. It is the historical objective of Christ. I hope you know what I mean. I can say Christ is in me and Christ is in you, but I can't see him. But there will be the day when an objective Christ one that can be seen in space and in time and history, that's the one. And, and notice he uses there, and acts especially, uses the name Jesus. We, we've talked about that in our last section. Why Jesus our Lord. The, remember, the name of Jesus is the name of his humiliation. When God became flesh and lived among us as a creature, as a fellow human, they called him Jesus—that's the name always associated with humanity,
1: with his living
0: in uh, history. So here it is underlining the fact that that person, that Jesus, who was born in humiliation, whom we met in the Gospels, who died a historic death, now comes to bring to pass in history. What he accomplished in history. Some people really do think that the return of Christ is something that's just purely objective. Just an that, that happens to you, and then you and that's it. No, this isn't death. Friend. This is in our history when the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. And it says, with a shout. Number one, The the word Paul uses there was used by the chariot drivers. They used, it was associated with the military chariot drivers giving commands to the horses. It was also used by hunters who would call out to their dogs and, and, and directing them to where they should go. It was also used by the person who sat in the boat when the slaves were rowing and they would make those shouts that would give them The understanding to turn the boat, that that was the word that's used here. It's a word that means an absolute, immediately to be obeyed, an urgent command. Remember John chapter 5, verse 28, speaking of the dead of the parousia. Jesus said, the dead hear his voice and come to life. Oh, the ultimate Lord directing the resurrection. The word shout was used by the military of the war crowd in the midst of the victory excitement. They won! And now it's Mother Up Time. And their shout goes out all over. And that's where that was used. We've won! Let's Let's go. I mean, it contains the urgency and the excitement of victory. And notice where it takes place. In the air. The Lord himself. Look, look, look at it. Look at it. First. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and we, and with the trumpet of God, the dead, and Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the quiet oh, that That's interesting to read. To read. Do, do you remember the, the word the domain of demons is at? Ephesians chapter 6, the prince of the power of the air. Isn't that nice that the grand finale of the finished work of Jesus Christ takes place on the demon's holy ground? That is, in the ear there goes forth a shout of command that this is the announcement of the consummation of the finished work. It's a moppin' up friend. It also says that the archangel is present. Now, honestly, we know very little about angels and archangels. It is just one of those things that God has basically said, it's None of our business. Lots of people have speculated, but there is very little that we know. We know that Michael is the archangel and that Gabriel is in that upper echelon as well, but we only know two angels' names. We do not, what what we do know is in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 that the angels are ministers unto us. We are the sons of God, angels are servants to the heirs of salvation. So without pushing too much, the archangel Michael, he's spoken of in Daniel as being the special protector of God's people. So I'm seeing that when this world at its worst, when when darkness and, and when the church is in the middle of that, the parousia, takes place, and the archangel is the one who ushers the church into a new universe. He who has protected God's people is now the one to usher them in to the new universe. It says it comes with a trumpet. Yeah, that's really, really <laughs> But it talks about the trumpet of God. And, and honestly, you know, I am also well confess, I don't. I don't see it necessary as, necessarily as a literal trumpet boiling This is a trumpet sound that is given to us, that is reverberating through the universe. And I see it more in the context of other verses, like, for example, Exodus 19. Remember, when God is going to speak the Ten Commandments, that there is a sound of, of a trumpet? It is somehow a sound that God has in the day's was associated with the giving of some great crisis in the experience of right there. Revelation 1, at when John was in the presence of the ascended Lord, it said he heard a voice like a trumpet. So there's an association there. And quite frankly, I, I don't know what it is. All I know is that throughout Scripture, it arrests people and says, Go ahead! But it's about to speak. That's the idea. Then in picture language, in the history of the ancient people, Israel, you have heard this trumpet and shouts before in their history. Remember the walking around the walls of Jericho, and the walls of Jericho fell down when they blew their trumpets and shouted? They came down? Do do you remember Gideon? They blew their trumpets and broke those pictures, and and said the Lord, uh, or said the sword of the Lord, and Gideon, and, and shouted, and victory was theirs. I mean, and again, the idea that the church at that time would be pressured by the forces of darkness and baptized, Heresia, and it is the end of all the enemies of God and the, church, the great one. The trumpets of the Old Testament, they were, they were blown on feast days, uh, on, on the Feast of Trumpets especially, and the every day and all week, also the, the year of jubilee, the times of blowing the trumpet, whether it was the new moon, which they blew once a month, or the Feast of Trumpets for the year of jubilee. Now, if you want to know the understanding of, of white trumpets, numbers 10 from 1 to 10 speaks of the white jubilee. They blew the trumpets over the altar, and it says, "You do that." So, let me give you these verses from nine to ten: "Is that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and be saved from your enemies. Also, in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast, and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a reminder of you before God." I am the Lord your God. Well, it says in the Old Testament that you may be remembered, you may be remembered. What does it mean that God is forgotten? Remember is a covenant word. It means that if you and I covenant, then I must remember you. And I translate that from from covenant terminology. It means that I must hold you. In my mind, and as I hold you there, plan ways in which to love you and make sure that you are served in all terms of the covenants. So God remembered. You will read of it where God remembered the covenants. He said, you blow that trumpet and it's a statement of covenant." He said, at that time, it will be the final jubilee. Can you imagine this, Pharisee? You know? it, it, it will be the final trumpet blast that ushers all God's covenant children into the eternal universe of covenants. It will be the beginning of the year of jubilee that will never end. It will be the final remembrance of God. Of course, it says these saints that you are worried about those, all these four disembodied creatures, that you. You had messed up on everything by dying. He, he said he's going to bring them with him. Well, if he brings them with them, if, if he brings them with them, it means that they are now with him. That's a deep isn't it? So he says, "Don't worry, they're with him, and he's going to bring them with him." Why is Jesus going to bring all of those people with him? Because they are coming to get their resurrection bodies. They're going to get their bodies the same time you get your bodies. You you understand, don't you? That only a minuscule company of believers is on the earth right now. Most of them are with him. Every believer that has died since the beginning, they are all with Christ. It's just a drop in the bucket here. He brings the whole lot with him. Now, of course, it is a time kind of knowing as we are known. You do realize that Peter, uh, remember the, 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 the Transfiguration, the Great Transformation, New, He absolutely knew without any introduction, that it was Elijah and Moses. He instantly knew who they were. Do you realize that you will instantly know who Paul is, who Peter is? You'll know them instantly. Every believer you will know even as you are known. No introductions. Just immediate knowledge. It says that as they are coming with them, we are caught up to meet them in the air. In First Corinthians 15, it speaks to this. It says, I'm reading 51. Take, take a look at it from the screen. It says, behold, well, I'm not used to this. I, I it there, But, hey, behold, I tell you in this screen, we will not all sleep, but we all, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and, and we will be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and, and we will be changed. Do you realize a blink of an eye is much longer than a twinkling? A twinkling of an eye is faster than a blink. In actual fact, because we live in 2023, we can almost leave it in the Greek. Because the Greek word there for twinkling is a word that we use. And that word is the word atom. So this is an atom of a second. So it's much quicker than a blink. The, The twinkle that passes through an eye, the atom of a second, And we shall be changed. A body given to us that is exactly like the body that Jesus rose from the dead with. A body suddenly free from all pain, free from all deformity, incapable of sickness, and incapable of even a headache. Hallelujah. Immediately they're caught up. And the word "caught up" there—it's got in at the idea of great force. It's—it's a grabbing. It's, a it's got in at the idea of of Sadness. Well, not sadness. sadness. Sometimes I wonder why. So suddenness—it's—it's the seizing upon it, of and, and and the carrying away by force. So here is the right direction. We are carried, and we to meet. The Lord in the air by force. The power of God entering into our bodies and bringing to us everything that Jesus died to give us. Philippians 3, verse 21 says, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, then he says that we're caught kind up of in the clouds. Does that mean it's going to be a northeast Ohio day, a cloudy day? Did, did you ever think about things like that when you read the Bible? I mean, did Did Jesus ascend on a cloudy day? The cloud received him out of their sight. I, I, I don't think so. I I don't think teaching on the first day. Pharisee, in Thessalon- Thessalonians, that, that he's giving us a weather report, okay? Concerning that last day. Clouds. Jesus caught up in an ascending cloud. Have you ever noticed from the very beginning of the Bible there's always been a cloud hanging around?
1: Right right there when they came
0: out of Egypt, there was what? There was a cloud waiting for them. A cloud, a kind of glory. And at night, it, it, it looked like a fire. And that cloud of Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant, the cloud that was in Solomon's Temple. And I believe with, with all the information we have, I can't prove it, obviously, but, that that cloud in which Jesus ascended, that he went up in, was the Shekinah glory cloud that has been around all through the Old Testament. I believe I can now look into that cloud and see who that cloud always was. But now it says that we are caught up in the clouds. We are caught up in the clouds of glory. It doesn't. Does that, I mean, doesn't it say that when we see Him, we shall be what like Him? Doesn't Colossians chapter three verse one say that Christ in us the hope of glory, the hope of glory? That when he shall appear, we also shall appear with him. That's the word, apophenia. It's as if the glory that is, in, that is in, that is his now, Christ in us, shall blaze forth. We will all have our own. By the grace of God, there will be this bursting forth, a resurrection body, and the bursting forth of Christ, who is now alive, bathed in clouds of glory, it is such that we will meet the Lord in the air. Meet. The, the word meet was used in Thessalonica, actually, it was when... Prominent citizens would go out of the city to meet a visiting uh, prominent citizen, of the state, And as a result, they would go out to the city to meet that dignitary and escort them back into the city. So here, the planet is being visited by the dignitary of all dignitaries. And the church goes out to meet him and come back to the planet. So the paratheist, it's the idea of something sudden. And chapter five really shows us that it's, it's unexpected and it's, it's, it's followed by the majestic ascent to earth to immediately usher in the new universe. I love the way Julie Phillips translated this passage. Uh, Jamie Phillips is a fun translation. You get a certain feel from it. Look at it. It says, One word of command, one shout from the archangel, one blast from the trumpet of God, and the Lord Himself will come down from heaven. Go oh, ahead. You get the When we say panacea, we're talking about something visible, universally visible. And please don't ask me how that could be because I don't know. But I'm dealing now with the infinite God and the infinite Lord Jesus Christ and in a way that is so far out of my mind and into God's way and wisdom I wouldn't even ask how it could be visible universally. All I know is it is. The parousia, it is visible. It's open. It's no secret. It's public. Try and hide something like that. I mean, come on. Man. It's audible. The sounds that reverberate throughout the universe. It wipes out one universe, and then it gives us another universe. As Paul said, do not be ignorant about these things. <laughs> and he finishes by saying, comfort one. There's a number of things that Paul says, do not be ignorant about them. All right? And if you make a list, you'll find it's the things that the church is ignorant about. Don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts, and the church is generally ignorant about spiritual gifts. Don't be ignorant about the Pharisee, and most people read books about it rather than be there and see what the scriptures say. Ignorance. It's is, is that dead-end street, my you know what, You know what that does? It, it, it just leads me to fear. It leads me to confusion, and it leads me to distress. It's the truth that will set you free, my friend. What does this truth do? When my ignorance is clear, what does it comfort me with? The thing about all things is that it gives me a perspective on life. I, I realize this life is, is is only the beginning. And to have that, that's the first time I'll enjoy this life. When you know that this life is only the beginning. This life is... Well, I'm going I'm to end it with a little... Uh, how should so, I so put it? And, uh, I'll, I'll say it like this. It's an example I've given before. I think it fits really well here. Like a 4 year restaurant, right? On the days when you go to that restaurant, that special restaurant, be it your anniversary, and that restaurant has a make for you. And you have your reservation, and you go in, and they set you down, and you visit as you sit there, and they put before you, and you of really In here to eat at this restaurant. And there's other people that, that are waiting around that are nibbling on these breadsticks as well. And every so often you see the nature he'll come out and, and, and call out one of the parties, your table is ready. And, the, and, and you've been sitting there. And besides you is the Smith family sitting there. And the Maitre D comes and says, Party of Smith, your table is ready. And the smiths kind of smirk at you as they go in. (laughs) Every time somebody goes in there, you catch a glimpse. You get to catch a glimpse of what's in there. Because the door's open just long enough so you you, you can can see inside. And then the door closes. The smiths are not in there. They're inside. Finally, they they call the backfire. The great delight I put down my breadstick, have eaten, and go into the restaurant. Why? Because that's the reason I came in the first place. And somebody might pass by, look where I was sitting waiting to go in, and say, "Oh, it's an old They never got to finish the breadstick. Who cares about the breadstick? I've been there at the greatest restaurant. My steak sitting by my deep breast, over and beside my ribs, over here. beside. understand? I didn't come to eat breadsticks. That breadstick is just a little shadow of what's inside. It. That I know there probably will be breadsticks in there. But so much more that the break will fade in significance. Insignificance, I should say. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Right now, we are visiting in the foyer of life.
1: We are all doing our
0: little bits and our little pieces. We're nibbling on our breadsticks. We're okay. doing thing. When it comes into our life, the energy. Only a shadow of what life is all about. It was, it was good while he was here. I, I mean, but, 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 but where he is now, it's this. Thank you for the blessed hope I'm looking forward to you. and in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed, changed. to meet you in the air. those overcome by your spirit bearing witness in their spirit. Love on that. May there be a